I'm Ben Horton. And I'm Agnes Frimston, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Undercurrents. I'm joined by my wonderful colleague, Ben Horton. Hello, Ben. Hello, Agnes. How are you? Sooner than planned. I'm very well. So thrilled to be back in the podcast feed. (laughs) Surprise content for you all. We've got another great interview for you. Ben, who did you speak to this week? So this week I spoke to Jennifer Zirk and Rosie Beacock from the International Law Programme at Chatham House about a new project that they've been working on since the start of the year on human rights and trade agreements. And obviously it's so much in the news at the moment, the whole topic of trade agreements, particularly in the UK, what with our... uh, ongoing negotiations about Brexit Mm -hmm. and our relationship with Europe and whether we're going to be able to negotiate a free trade agreement with the US after Brexit and what that will involve and what sort of horrendous food we will then be importing into our markets after that. So yeah, we had a conversation about some work that they've been doing on how human rights are typically protected in trade agreements. Spoiler alert, they're not. Yeah, what forgets doesn't, you know, there are people at the end of every every agreement, basically. Exactly. Um, especially if it's often about quite intense legal trade arguments. Okay, well, let's have a listen. Let's do it. Well, today I'm delighted to be joined by two colleagues to talk about an exciting new project from the International Law Programme at Chatham House titled Human Rights Monitoring of Trade Agreements. And I've got with me today Jennifer Zirk, who is an Associate Fellow in the International Law Programme, and Rosie Beacock, who is a Research Assistant on the project. Thank you so much for joining us, guys. Nice to be here. Thank you. Thanks, Ben. Thank you. It's great to be here. So I guess in the media, we hear a lot of talk about trade agreements, often in the context of Brexit in the UK. And we hear a lot about the threat of chlorinated chicken invading us from the US and and hormone injected beef as a result of trade agreements between the UK and different countries. But something that maybe doesn't get enough attention is the impact on human rights that trade agreements can have. So just to kick us off, could you maybe tell us a bit about what kind of human rights issues people are most worried about? Sure. So trade agreements can facilitate not just positive, but also negative consequences for workers and communities. So as you said about the chlorine chicken from the US potentially entering the UK market has really kind of been in the media a lot and helped shed a spotlight a little on potential implications of trade agreements and what they actually mean for people and everyday life. And in terms of human rights impacts, you might have positive things like countries implementing labour standards, liberalised trade leading to better employment opportunities, development of certain sectors. You might have investment into big infrastructure projects that kind of improve everyday life. But you can also have a lot of negative impacts. For example, foreign competition can lead to a decline for local industries and sectors, which could lead to job losses and from factory closures. Zambia is quite a good example because it kind of enables Canadian companies that are mining in Colombia to kind of develop their operations further. Activities that these mining companies engage in are quite often linked to a variety of human rights issues like indigenous people's rights, forced displacement, pollution of water sources, 
So that's something that can be quite concerning for a lot of people. Increased export of products that are linked to exploitative labour conditions could exacerbate those issues due to increased foreign demand. And that's also something that could be an issue for um, agricultural products. If certain produce is opened up to new markets, you could have an uptick in deforestation to meet demand for agriculture. So there are a lot of issues that can result either in connection with a trade agreement or as a consequence of it. And these can be both positive and negative and be quite diverse in, in what kind of outcomes that can happen from different agreements. I suppose something, I mean, this may come across to you, seasoned observers of trade negotiations, like this is a naive question, but why are people so worried about these potential human rights impacts of trade agreements? Don't countries now automatically take these issues into account when they're negotiating these agreements? Well, it's not necessarily always sort of on the radar so much traditionally. I'd say that negotiations sort of tend to focus more on economic implications of liberalisation of trade. Um, It's not so much human rights issues if they are on the agenda might not be very much dealt with substantively. And I do think that people are increasingly concerned, as we've talked about, and this is kind of putting more pressure on governments to be more transparent about how they're put into place. I think from a layperson's perspective, it's really kind of very much in the shadows and you're not really sure what's going on. There's maybe not very much accessible information about what goes on behind the scenes. Mm. And the issue is that if a country does enter into a trade agreement without taking human rights issues into account, they'll have no understanding of potentially adverse impacts and whether that agreement could worsen certain human rights situations or improve things. And failing to do that kind of, I guess, due diligence, if you will, could result in human rights violations. And it could also be perceived negatively by civil society, business and the public more generally if there's adverse outcomes that you could have identified as risks and kind of managed them, but it didn't happen during negotiations. I think where these things are assessed at negotiation stage and there is no ongoing follow-up, states won't be able to tell whether any commitments they've made to human rights have been met, whether the trade agreement's actually improving things or worsening human rights situations, and whether any steps that they've kind of identified to mitigate risks are actually working. So there's quite a lot of ramifications and it's not necessarily something that's central to the trade conversation as much as maybe it should be. It seems astounding that these issues are not more kind of front and centre. Jennifer, I was just wondering if we could come to you now. Whose responsibility is it to protect human rights during trade negotiations? Is it really up to the individual states involved or are there organisations like the World Trade Organisation or something that play a role in monitoring this? It's the responsibility of states when they're negotiating and implementing trade agreements not to sign up to terms which could lead to human rights violations, certainly. We would also say that as part of their human rights responsibilities, they should be also on the lookout for constraints that might make it more difficult to introduce laws in future to protect the human rights of citizens. The UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights talk about this in terms of the need to preserve adequate regulatory and policy space in their international treaties, including trade agreements, of course, so that they can respond properly to domestic human rights concerns. There's quite an interesting side discussion to be had, though, about whose human rights we're talking about, because 
despite what I just said about the need to ensure that trade agreements don't have an adverse human rights impact on your own citizens, major trading actors like the EU seem to spend a lot more time and effort investigating the human rights uh, impacts that might be experienced in the jurisdiction of the trading partner and particularly less developed uh, trading partners than, than within their own jurisdictions. There's an ongoing debate about exactly how far each state's regulatory obligations to protect human rights actually extend. I don't necessarily want to <laughs> divert into that for the purposes of this discussion. But even if you take the view that state responsibilities are extraterritorial to some extent, as well as being focused on what's going on inside the territory, there's no justification for focusing all your attention on what other states are doing and, and not investigating uh, human rights impacts in your own jurisdiction effectively and properly. How then are human rights currently protected in the sort of typical trade negotiation process? I would answer that I don't think they're protected particularly well. We and also other researchers have struggled to find any evidence that work done to identify human rights risks and opportunities attached with the agreement at the uh, preparation and negotiation stage of an agreement has any real impact on what goes into the agreement, either in terms of the substance or in terms of the mechanisms that are put in place to monitor compliance. And there are many reasons for this, which we'll no doubt come to in the discussion that we're going to have, but, but one that has been um, identified by researchers like James Harrison and Claire Gamage is the institutional separation that you often find between people who are commissioning work on the human rights issues and the people who are responsible for then negotiating the agreement. Now, obviously, these different groups of people have and, and absolutely need different kinds of skills and expertise, but there's not much evidence of the kind of cross-fertilisation of expertise and knowledge that you would need to have a much more, a more joined up approach to these kinds of issues. So what mechanisms do states have? What actions can they take to make sure that they don't sign up to trade agreements that pose human rights risks or make it harder to meet these obligations? Well, the answer that's been put forward by many civil society organisations working on business and human rights issues, as well as trade unions and a number of academics and some UN agencies such as the OHCHR and, and treaty bodies and also special uh, rapporteurs, is that states really need to move to a system of very thorough ex-ante, that's you know beforehand, impact assessment to make sure that the risks associated with what's proposed are properly identified and covered off, whether in the agreement itself or through some kind of flanking measures followed up by proper monitoring to make sure that the parties are living up to the human rights commitments that they've made in their trading arrangements and that any mitigation measures that have been deemed to have been necessary are, are working in the way that they should. But this, this isn't happening at, at the moment. States are not assessing human rights impacts of trade agreements very well, if at all. And even if they are, these processes aren't having that much of an effect, if any, on the trade negotiations and even if some prior work is done to identify and analyse the risks, this is not being followed up by the parties in any kind of robust or systematic way. Is this a question of motivation to an extent? Why is it not deemed to be important? Why isn't it happening? Is it just that governments think that they need to be prioritising the economy, the kind of monetary value of these deals? Or is it that actually it's just terrifically hard to, <laughs> to do this well? It's a really good question. There is an ongoing debate going on about whether trade agreements are the appropriate place at all to address social, 
human rights and environmental mm. issues. And, and, and many would argue, and with some justification, that these are fundamentally economic tools which make a largely positive contribution to the enjoyment of human rights through all the benefits that come from economic growth and increased prosperity, as, as Rosie was just saying. It's also important to highlight too that there are concerns, there's some pushback from governments, particularly those in the global south, that linking trade and human rights together too closely might provide cover for or might end up being some kind of protectionist system or some kind of neo-imperialist way of forcing uh, Western ideas about what states should be doing as regards mm. human rights issues onto other countries. That said, provisions that are related to human rights are increasingly finding their way into trade agreements as part of ethical foreign policy programs and also as a way of demonstrating to stakeholders that these kinds of agreements can respond to stakeholder concerns. So, in addition to including human rights in foundational essential elements clauses, which has been the practice for some time, trading partners are increasingly including specialist chapters in their trade agreements on, on trade and labour and trade and environment. And lately, as Rosie has discovered in her research into Canadian practice, uh, trade and gender, in these chapters, the parties exchange commitments about maintaining certain standards, ratifying and implementing international treaties and confirming that there's going to be no race to the bottom between them. However, the human rights coverage of these kinds of provisions is pretty patchy, focusing on a fairly narrow range of issues, which may or may not reflect or respond to the issues that have been found in the earlier processes. To come back to what you were saying about human rights impact assessments on the one hand and then the monitoring of trade agreements after the agreement has been signed. Could you talk me through some of the reasons that these two activities are so difficult to do? What are the obstacles to doing these in practice? Okay, well, beginning with the ex-ante processes, there, there is to start off with a massive problem with forecasting all the kinds of things that could possibly happen um, that can have a bearing on human rights risks that might be connected with the trade, trade agreement in some way. For example, I haven't seen in any of the ex-ante studies that I've read any attempts to analyse what might happen in the event of a global pandemic on the scale that we're seeing at the moment with COVID-19. Obviously, that's having a, a devastating effect on, on global supply chains and people working within them. But as this experience shows, unexpected things can happen, uh, which can derail the, <laughs> the best forecasting efforts. There's only so much, obviously, that a, an ex-ante assessment process can do. So, we, we, we all need to be a lot more realistic about how good even the best of these processes can be at providing policymakers with, with very accurate forecasts about what might happen. There's also many challenges around the processes for choosing the issues that will be focused on because, as Rosie indicated at the start, the number of different human rights impacts of or effects of a trade agreement can be absolutely legion. So, there's a need for parties to prioritise. So, ideally, practitioners will try and identify the most salient human rights risks and try and prioritise those. And engagement with stakeholders is a really important way of identifying what those salient human rights risks might be. But there's still plenty of scope for disagreement between uh, different groups. And as a result, there can be a certain amount of politicisation of, of these kinds of processes. And a, a further problem is really around the, the Goldilocks moment for carrying out these kinds of assessments. So, if you 
carry them out too early, and I'm, I'm speaking particularly about ex-ante processes here, carry them out too early in the process and you won't know enough about the contours of the agreement to be able to make very accurate economic predictions. But if the assessment is made too late in the negotiations process, there may not be enough time to take account of the findings in the negotiations, which, which makes the whole process rather pointless. So when you get to the stage of looking at ongoing monitoring, an unavoidable issue with it is the issue of causation. So being able to establish a causal link in economic, social and environmental impacts and a specific trade agreement is a real challenge given you can have a multitude of different agreements operating in the same space. And then the human rights issues that you're looking at are also attributable to a number of other factors, such as different bodies engaged in monitoring have flagged as a significant challenge, um, such as the EU and Canada have both said that it's really difficult to establish a causal link between trade agreements and human rights impacts. But that's not to say it's not possible. It's certainly difficult, but if you use, for instance, in-depth case studies and if there's strong baseline data to draw from where you've identified salient risks, then it is possible to do. And it's also kind of underpinned by having access to enough information from a variety of sources and stakeholders. So you can actually have a thorough study of relevant issues when you are monitoring. Just picking up on some of those political points again, because they are particularly interesting. As I was saying earlier, there's lots of challenges around choosing the right issues to focus on. And I mentioned earlier that um, these can be subject to a certain amount of politicisation. Relevant to that is pick up again on the point that I made earlier about the fact that less developed trading partners tend to come under a lot more scrutiny as far as human rights issues are concerned than their richer, more powerful counterparts. And this is justified in the EU context, in the context of EU assessment and monitoring by the fact that the economic impacts of trade agreements, and hence the logic goes the human rights impacts, are likely to be more pronounced in less developed countries. But that does rather obscure the inequalities of distribution of benefits and also of adverse impacts of trade agreements, which ought to be a really important part of the analysis. Certainly, in any event, the effects, the human rights impacts of trade agreements aren't inevitably confined to less developed countries. Another point to make about these imbalances is that they do contribute to a certain amount of cynicism amongst stakeholders and countries about whether raising uh, human rights standards is really the objective here or whether there's some kind of neo-imperialist game afoot. Uh, and these kinds of attitudes obviously don't do very much for promoting more engagement and more, more collaboration on these processes, the kinds of engagement and collaboration that you'd really need to see in order to improve them. And a lot of these issues are also very much present when it comes to the issues around reaching affected stakeholders. And meaningful stakeholder engagement is really crucial to monitoring, it helps ensure that risks are identified and addressed and that other issues aren't overlooked or missed. Many trade agreements now have facilities for gathering views from civil society, business, trade unions and academics through kind of bodies and mechanisms established through agreements. But stakeholder engagement through these setups faces a lot of barriers and is one, probably one of the most criticised aspects of human rights monitoring. So initially you have, you have to get past the lack of clarity about stakeholders' role in discussions, forums. One of the biggest issues is ensuring that stakeholders have the capacity to participate effectively in monitoring. As stakeholder groups from less wealthy countries often have significant resource constraints. There's also the factor of awareness raising. So there's a need to ensure that stakeholders with expertise and stakeholders who are directly 
affected by negative impacts are aware of the opportunity to have their perspective heard and understand what avenues they can use. So actually kind of raising awareness of how to participate in monitoring is important. And underpinning a lot of this is accessibility and also logistical challenges. So being able to obtain views from a diverse set of stakeholders, which can't necessarily meet in Brussels regularly for a big in-person session, and might result in certain impacts not being recognised, as I said. So there's a need for more use of things like surveys, on-the-ground workshops, um, video conferencing, etc., you know, to have more desired outcomes and to ensure that the monitoring is as effective as it can be. Yes, that's, that's all very true. I, I do think there is a need for more effort to diversify the sources of information that impact assessment and monitoring practitioners habitually consult and which are made available to people carrying out these kinds of processes to get a much better sense of what is happening on the ground. Because the starting point a lot of, for a lot of the human rights analysis in this context tends to be information on the trading partner's record of ratifying international human rights treaties and, and the comments of international monitoring bodies. And, and that's fine, but it won't tell you a great deal about the effectiveness of enforcement and implementation at a domestic level, let alone the human rights conditions under which the goods that are being traded under the agreement um, have been manufactured uh, or produced. But we are starting to see more explicit references in trade agreements to the potential contributions that local regulatory agencies could be making to these kinds of processes, which is, I think, a very positive development. It's worth investing in trying to keep momentum up in that direction, I think, not least because this potentially links very well with some very major trading actors are presently trying to do, uh, and the EU in particular, relation to responsible business, what we call the responsible business agenda. So I think there's, there's scope for much more linkage of monitoring activities done on the one hand for the purposes of evaluating the human rights impacts of trade agreements and on the other hand for the purposes of establishing corporate compliance with responsible business type laws to the potential benefit of both practices because I think I think for too long these kinds of activities have been carried out on on parallel tracks with, without much regard for each other. So I think it's probably time in the name of policy coherence that these different tracks were brought together somehow. Thank you so much. That was such a comprehensive summary of all these obstacles. So we've got the, the forecasting problem, the causation problem, the problem of the politics between parties in these agreements, the difficulties of reaching the relevant stakeholders, and also the kind of problems that we have with the indicators that we're that we're using at the moment. That's super comprehensive and also super super depressing because it seems like there are so many <laughs> so many reasons why this can't work. But so now I want us to engage a little bit, if we can, in a bit of a blue sky thinking exercise from both of you. But Jennifer, maybe if you want to kick us off. What do you think in an ideal world, if you were just in charge of this and you could, you could put in place a proper framework for ensuring that human rights are protected in trade agreements, what does that look like? Well, we've done a lot of work in thinking about this, and we've been we've we've talked to um, a lot of people in in the commission and elsewhere. And I mean, looking at how things are at the moment and how we might get from now to to good, basically, we would advocate firstly a concerted effort to link ex ante assessment and ex post monitoring processes together much more strongly so that the risks identified 
early on at the negotiations and preparation stage are properly followed up to make sure that the right corrective and mitigation actions are undertaken and undertaken properly. And if this isn't working, that the appropriate adjustments are made. So there needs to be a link between those early processes and the follow-up processes, which, which frankly isn't, isn't there at the moment. This idea borrows from the way that risk management systems work in other settings. So basically, if, if trading partners want to do human rights risk management properly in the trade context, they need to be looking at these, at these other models and, and learning from them. Secondly, there needs to be a lot more collaboration between trading partners on assessment and monitoring, ideally through joint assessment processes, if that's at all possible. I realise that's difficult. Or some parallel processes that could subsequently be worked into some kind of joint action plan. So more to and fro and give and take is needed to make monitoring fairer, more credible, and to help address the problems of politicisation that I was talking about earlier. Thirdly, I think adjustments to the structures and mandates and processes of the consultative mechanisms that are set up in the trade agreements are needed so that they have a much clearer, much better defined role in relation to the systematic monitoring of the way that states are implementing human rights related commitments, whether those are recorded through an action plan or otherwise. We, we do acknowledge that this will be very difficult because present structures do not provide a ready-made system for monitoring. So, this would need states to be prepared to look at new institutional structures and, and, and with probably much wider mandates. Fourthly, there needs to be much greater effort in the direction of political support and investment, including capacity building of the kinds of organisations that Rosie was referring to, the uh, the stakeholders and, and the civil society organisations, unions, regulatory agencies on the ground on which these uh, mechanisms really rely. And finally, it would be good to see a much greater focus on cyclical development, on, on continuous improvement. So, building in opportunities for evaluation and renewal of action plans and monitoring systems um, in a way that allows learning to flow back in, into the improvement of ex-ante processes and methodologies. And you put it so quickly and so easily, it sort of amazes me that these things can't be done. But why, <laughs> why then is this such a departure from the way things are done at the moment? And it is, is the vision you just, you just gave us. Do you think that's something that's remotely negotiable? Is this something, are there elements of this that we could reach for in a, in a realistic way? <laughs> Frankly, it will be very difficult to make a lot of headway very quickly. We, we don't underestimate the challenges here uh, for the reasons that I just described, because the, because of the current structures are, are, so, are so different and not, and not really geared up for the kind of monitoring role that I was describing. So to cause trading partners to start to move away from the, the standardised ways of doing things that have developed and to try things that are a bit more novel and collaborative in this space would require a considerable push. And I am not sure exactly where that would come from at the moment. But we, we do think it's worth giving thought to what good might look like and, and, and making the proposals. Because even if the, the scheme that I identified just now isn't implementable in its entirety, and, and certainly one of the challenges would be the levels of consensus and collaboration needed to make it work, there's, there's no harm in presenting ideas as a, as a way of, as, as a platform for future advocacy and discussion because 
clearly some reform is needed and there is an appetite um, within the EU to try and improve the effectiveness of these consultative bodies at the moment. So, so this, if there was ever a time to be you know, making these types of proposals, now is it. Given the extent of the challenges, I think it's worth thinking how we build on existing foundations, uh, however imperfectly they may be functioning, rather than inventing something entirely new from scratch. Not least because incremental improvements are more likely to be attractive to policymakers and then have, have the necessary traction. And that's what Rosie and I will be trying to do as we, as we take this work forward. I was just wondering if we could explore on the subject of incremental changes. I mean, you mentioned earlier that Rosie's been looking at what Canada has been doing on gender. Is that right in trade agreements? Like, would that be something that we could just go into a little bit? Well, what the Canadians are doing in relation to trade and gender is an example of an incremental change. It's, it's, a, it's an example of picking up on a new human rights issue and seeing how it can be addressed in the trading context. And it's an interesting new idea. I mean, there is a debate about whether it will actually lead to improvements, you know, in terms of gender equality on the ground. But it, it does give visibility to the issue within the trading context. Uh, but a, a, a problem that we have, it, it, the problem persists that these human rights issues continue to be siloed in specific chapters and dealt with and with specific mechanisms. There isn't a lot of scope in the agreements as they're constructed at the moment for human rights issues that cross the, the whole trade agreement or which can arise under, under different terms, you know, in, for example, problems of gender equality that may arise from the, uh, the way other aspects of the trade agreement operates, for example, in relation to um, patenting of medicines, for example. Mm. So, I'm not sure that continuing with creating new chapters for specific human rights themes is necessarily the way forward. Perhaps a more forward-looking approach might be to create consultative bodies that have the ability to cross different human rights issues and respond to them in a more holistic and comprehensive way than this uh, current siloing approach of human rights issues that we see at the moment. I just wondered if we could bring this right up into the present and have a think about the current crisis that we're experiencing across the world with COVID-19, the coronavirus pandemic. As you mentioned earlier, it's really highlighted the fragility of global supply chains and the plight of people working within, within the global economy. We've seen all sorts of factory closures, lockdowns at worker hostels. We've seen cancellations of orders by Western brands as, as the economy contracts and, and people are becoming a lot more pessimistic about the economic health of the system. I just wondered whether either of you see any kind of indication that these factors are feeding into how countries might approach assessing and monitoring these issues in the future. Do you think that the coronavirus pandemic is going to be something that makes a change? Is it, is it a breaking point? Well, I think the COVID-19 crisis is teaching us a lot and we have to make sure that the lessons are learned. And if there are regulatory opportunities coming out of this that could help protect human rights of people who work in global value chains, then we really have to grab them with both hands. I think the COVID-19 crisis really highlights the need for human rights monitoring of trade agreements to be better at tracking risks and trends at a more micro level. And also it is also teaching us the importance of building in the flexibility into monitoring and evaluation processes that is needed to make sure 
that we can respond to sudden changes in levels of human rights risk as a result of emergencies that may not have been foreseen at the time that the trade agreement was negotiated and the time it was brought into effect. So I think the trick will be to try and move away from the situation that we have at the moment where monitoring of human rights issues between trading partners occupies an entirely different plane and different kinds of actors from the kinds of human rights monitoring activities that companies and and multi-stakeholder organisations are already carrying out for the purposes of making sure that they comply with codes of conduct on the management of human rights issues in their supply chains, for example. So, as I indicated in one of my earlier answers, it would be really good if going forward we could be a lot more alert to the places where there are synergies between human rights monitoring systems under trade agreements and human rights monitoring taking place under emerging legal regimes. And I'm referring particularly here to regimes that are designed to address problems in cross-border business. And the proposals that the EU is working up at the moment on mandatory human rights due diligence for companies is is a very topical example of this. So, just to summarise, we need to recognise and try to capitalise on the opportunities that could come from bringing different types of monitoring activities closer together, not just in terms of greater access to factory level and site level information, although that is a potential advantage, but also for the good that could come from much greater engagement with the people and the agencies and the organisations that are likely to have the best understanding of conditions on the ground. Yeah, I think there's a lot of potential for, you know, the rise of mandatory human rights due diligence and how that could kind of potentially benefit both the trade monitoring side and also the business monitoring side. There's a lot of shared knowledge there that could be used and maybe linking monitoring activities. I think there's a lot of scope there for really robust monitoring of human rights impacts. Thank you. Well, I hope to have you on in the future as this project continues to to see if anything that that we've talked about today has changed, if the situation has changed and and whether these many sides have have started talking to each other and thinking in a more joined up way. Jennifer Zirk, Rosie Beacock, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. Great. Well, that was such an interesting lesson. Thank you. We're going to be back next week, but with a more regular content list would you say Ben? Yeah absolutely back with two interviews on the one episode and some really interesting pieces lined up so excited to share those with you. Yeah but you know in the meantime if you could rate and subscribe we'd always be very grateful tell your friends about us if you want to get in contact tweet us at Chatham House or through the website but in the meantime I'm Ben Horton I'm Agnes Frimpson and you've been listening to Undercurrent.